has created an enormous amount of value. His revolution in retail alone has saved us untold hours of time and has added innumerable hours to each of our lives. He has also drawn on his own personal earnings to invest heavily in the space industry. Why then is it that so much of the response to his historic achievement in spaceflight is such a disgusting display of hatred, vitriol, and resentment? We will be analyzing this response to Bezos' spaceflight today. Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayman Institute. I'm Agustina Vergara-Sid. I'm a research associate at ARI. And joining me today is Keith Lockage, senior fellow and instructor at ARI. Welcome, Keith. Hi, Agustina. So Keith, um, I wanted to start this podcast by letting you and the audience know how I personally felt uh, when I watched the launch of uh, the Blue Origin rocket uh, back in a week ago in July 20th. So I remember when, when I started watching it, you know, as happens with these things, I was kind of like optimistically nervous about it because like this is such a major conquest over nature and of course, like all like space launches are, are are this, but you know it's such a big deal to do this that I was kind of like nervous, you know, something can go wrong. But at the same time, I had like full confidence that you know the research and the human ingenuity that went behind this this project would would make the launch successful ultimately. And and you know they were showing in the live stream like the before everything started, like the parts of the rocket and the whole system that launches the rocket, and I was like in awe of this like incredible piece of machinery that is designed in this specific case to take non-expert people, meaning not professional astronauts, to space and back safely. And, and then, you know, I saw Bezos and, and the rest of the crew uh, led by Wally Funk, which I thought was really awesome, walking to, to the rocket. And, and I was kind of like trying to wrap my head around what it must feel like to be in their shoes. And it was just awesome. And then when it launched, I just felt like profound admiration at this achievement and joy kind of that I was witnessing what to me was like a milestone in, in, in space exploration. And uh, the, the human mind is capable of such incredible things. And honestly, anyone that can achieve this level of mastery over nature has my admiration. I know this has happened many times before. Every time I see it, I can't help but you know, be amazed by it. So, and then they came back to Earth like, safely, and and then you know, seeing how happy they were, and like the, the cameras inside of the of the pod, and how they were like playing in space. I thought that was incredibly awesome. And um, and then in the aftermath, you know, before the launch, I had seen a lot of you know, a few articles and a few tweets here and there, like hating Bezos before the launch. But I thought, you know, after seeing this, there's no way people are, are going to keep this up. But I was honestly kind of shocked to see the level of hatred and vitriol against Bezos and Blue Origin that after the launch. Yeah. It was just, <clears throat> I'm shocked, honestly. Yeah, I, I had a similar reaction. I mean, I've read, I read a little bit about Bezos's goals in founding his space company, Blue Origin. And you know, like you, I was like thrilled to see this, him achieving this huge milestone and the excitement that went all around that. And then, yeah, I mean, just, I, I was, I was, I was disgusted at how viciously he was being attacked. And that's why we wanted to do this podcast, because I, I just think, 
there, there's such a disconnect between his achievements and the way he's um, treated in the culture. And that's what we wanted to talk about. So, but let's like, what well, just to set the context a little bit, what were some of the comments that you saw? Some of the, like, you know, some of the hateful tweets and things that you saw. Yeah, so there was a lot of backlash from basically everyone in the public eye and not just like, but regular people as well. And there was from, from the media, celebrities, politicians, etc. They like, for instance, there was this uh, couple tweets from uh, Tulsi Gabbard that were like, honestly, in my opinion, really, really disgusting. And the tweets read, Bezos, please stay up there. Do the world a favor. And then another tweet from her. The only problem I have with Bezos Blue Origin space rocket ship into outer space is that it's going to come back. So, and then you have Robert Reich, who is um, quite a character um, saying, billionaires rocketing off into space while the rest of humanity suffers is a sign of a broken society, not societal progress. So we're just like, we don't really wanna give that much airtime to these haters and people who cannot see the significance of this uh, achievement. Uh, but it, you just have to go to Twitter and like search uh, Jeff Bezos to see what everyone is saying. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more. And there are many worse tweets that people are, are putting out there. And even, you know, uh, like SNL did a skit that I found terrible. Um, yeah. it's, it's everywhere in the culture, unfortunately. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think the place to start today is is with the question of why is there so much animosity towards Jeff Bezos in the first place? I mean, and we wanted to focus on him. There are other space entrepreneurs, Richard Branson, Elon Musk, etc. But we wanted to focus on Bezos in particular, partly because, I mean, this isn't, this isn't, uh, it's not like the animosity towards him only began after the space flight. He's constantly vilified by people all over today's culture. And um, so why is that? And why, you know, what are some of the reasons behind that? I think, and I think we, we can kind of unpack this in layers. I think part of the answer is, I really think that people take the achievements of someone like a Jeff Bezos for granted. And we don't, there's a disconnect between, um, we sort of forget what kind of an impact it's actually had on our lives. Like the fact that you can spend a few minutes on your phone ordering something from Amazon and be pretty confident that most of the time it's like literally gonna arrive the next day. Like you haven't even had to get up from the couch. Uh, And like, this may seem like a little thing, but it's actually a mind blowing business achievement. And the, the problem is it's become so commonplace that we forget what it was like when we didn't have this in our lives. And we take for granted what an enormous accomplishment it is that he was able to build a company that does this on the scale that it does this. And I, and I think it's worth underscoring, like, why is this so valuable? We said this a little bit as part of the opening, but like the fact is each of us only has one life to live. And every minute of that life is precious. If you add up the number of hours that being able to shop on Amazon has saved you, you know, I mean, just you know, saved you from having to drive to ten different stores and stand in checkout lines. You know, I mean, not that this is; they, these are obviously like first. This is like a first world kind of problem, right? But, but still, 
not having to do all that kind of thing has literally saved hours and hours from your life each year. I mean, Jeff Bezos has literally added years to each of our lives. And I think people don't think about that. They take it for granted. It's not, it, they, they forget the reality of that. That's part of it. Yeah, and I, I uh, live most of my life in Argentina. I moved here to America only four years ago. And Amazon is not available in Argentina, or I mean, you can technically order from Amazon, but because of regulations and customs and whatnot, you're not gonna get your package anytime soon or at all. Um, so I lived a lot of my life not having this awesome service. And then when I came here and I started ordering on Amazon, I was like, holy cow, like this is such a difference in my life. Like so much, I'm, I'm saving so much time just buying books from school for school instead of having to go to specialized library, lost law, law library, whatever, and buy it or rent the book. Like it's just, it adds, it added so much value to my life that I, I was just amazed. And sometimes you need that kind of contrast, you know, to realize that and not take it for granted, but I don't think anyone should take it for granted. And, and it's not just, you know, the delivery services, uh, which is like, like you said, like it saved us an untold amount of time, um, but, Amazon also offers many other services. Like it, it has like a lot of other companies uh, within it that much like the retail business had added a lot of value to our lives. To name like just a few, there's Audible, which I personally use almost every day. It's a pioneer on audiobooks and uh, it allows you to be quote, reading a, reading a book and like listening to a book while you do a bunch of other stuff. And there's of course, like, you know, the whole like Alexa system, which allows you to control many things in your house without lifting a finger, just with a, and now she spoke and she reacted, uh, you know, and it allows you to make online orders just by telling her, hey, order this from Amazon. And uh, it's like literally having an assistant 24 seven inside your house. And well, there's, there's so many other services that Amazon has and make our lives so much yeah. better. I mean, the, and the thing is, that, and they keep adding value. I remember when, when uh, they added Prime Video as something, they didn't, they didn't increase the cost of Prime membership at the time. They just added all this streaming content, you know, just here, you get this as well as part of your membership. I was blown away by that. It's, and I mean, not, so if you really look at all the different ways that Amazon touches our lives and Amazon web services, I mean, let's not get, you can get into that, which dominates the cloud computing industry. So many of the products that we use rely on, AWS for their backend systems. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, he's a, the company's had such an impact um, and has brought so much value into all of our lives. I think people, you know, I really, I really do think people take for granted and forget about all the ways in which they've been impacted by the company. And, um, you know, I think another aspect that I think is important to highlight is the fact that this is a private company you know, that has made all these achievements through voluntary win-win trades. You know, Amazon, you know, unlike the government, Amazon doesn't have the power to force anybody to do anything. They have to earn their customers, you know, they have to uh, retain their employees, um, they have to work, you know, earn the vendor relationships that they have through creating value and offering and trading in win-win relationships with everybody they deal with. I was I was curious because I didn't I, it hadn't occurred to me to look this number up before. But do you know how many Amazon Prime members there are in the world? 
No, I assume like many, how many, how many, many people are, Yeah. So I, I, I was curious. I hadn't, I hadn't looked this up before. Apparently, there's something like 200 million Amazon Prime subscribers, something like 150 million in the US alone and 200 million worldwide. Um, so, and that's, that's like translates to something like $25 billion a year in revenues just from Prime memberships alone. And, and that's a drop in the bucket in terms of Amazon's annual revenues. So the point is like nobody's forcing 200 million people worldwide to pay for Amazon Prime. Obviously they find it valuable enough, I'm one of them, to, to be worth paying more than hundred bucks a year to have, to, to have access to the services that being a member of Prime gives you. So you wanna know why Amazon is one of the most successful companies around today and why Jeff Bezos you know, is one of the wealthiest people on the planet. It's because of the incredible value creation that, that uh, causes you know, literally hundreds of millions of people around the world to partake in Amazon services. It's, there's no mystery here. Uh, and what, I, what people need to recognize is what an incredible achievement this is. This is, this is, this is a heroic achievement uh, to create a business that has this kind of impact on people's lives. Um, yeah, and, and uh, there's a whole narrative in our culture about the, the, the idea that somehow the success of Amazon has come as a result of you know, exploiting employees or taking advantage of tax loopholes or all this kind of thing. You know, again, I was curious because uh, I didn't actually know what the number was. So I looked this up. I mean, do you know how many employees Amazon has worldwide? How many? There's, there's, there's something like 1.3 million people who work for Amazon. I mean, you know, we work for a small nonprofit that has like 40 employees. And just even to manage a small group of people like that, like it's very tricky and complex. Like the, the, the kind of leadership that, are, that is required to manage a company of 1.3 million people and to integrate all of their activities on the scale that Amazon does, such that they're able to um, uh, you know, execute two-day, one-day, two-day package delivery, like all the places that they touch. I mean, I mean just the business achievement is, is mind-blowing. Um, and again, this is all through voluntary trades. You know, nobody's forced to work for Amazon. Uh, you hear all these claims and all these stories about, oh, how horrible the working conditions are at Amazon facilities. The thing is, when you see a culture-wide campaign that's aimed at attacking and vilifying any person or company who's successful on this scale, I think you need to be extra careful before accepting, just, just accepting point blank any claims about the supposed evil of that person or company. You know, I've, I've talked to people who work for Amazon and they talk about it being like an absolutely fantastic company to work for. If you have a workforce of 1.3 million people, are you gonna be able to find some employees here and there who, who you know, don't have a good perspective on their job and maybe have complaints about the working conditions? Sure, but you're also gonna find you know, millions of employees who, who love working there. So um, I think you have to be really skeptical about all these claims. And the, and the thing is that, um, 
none of these none of these claims explain Amazon's success. You don't you don't achieve the kind of success and the value creation that Amazon had achieved by by exploiting people. You do it by you know what we've just discussed, creating incredible value and delivering on that value every day. Um, so, you know, I think people fail to appreciate just how hard it is to create a company that, that is so capable and so reliable um, on the scale that Amazon operates on. Um, again, I think the bottom line here is that people fail to appreciate what an achievement this is, and they just, they completely take for granted the, the values that Amazon um, brings. So I think, I think that's the first point that I wanted to talk about. Um, but let's transition specifically to the attacks on the spaceflight event. Because here, so there's the general animus against uh, Jeff Bezos and, and uh, Amazon in general. And I think a lot of that um, is a result of the things we've talked about. Um, but with the with the spaceflight event in particular, it was like a, it brought a special focus, and I thought just the the superficiality and the viciousness of people's comments were really striking, and and their failure to kind of recognize and appreciate the the true meaning of this event was was evident. Um, so let's talk about that. What were some of the things that you saw uh, in terms of people's commentary on the spaceflight event itself? Yeah, um, like the level of the the just the level of the of the of the comments was just so low. I honestly could not believe what I was seeing. From, I mean, there's some intellectuals, whatever that you expect, you know that they, you know they are wrong, and they usually get everything wrong. But just the common people, general people, just making these jokes and 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 the mocking vasos and, and and amazon and just the level of the discourse was just so low that honestly i'm just shocked and just incredibly disgusted by this but anyway one of the major themes that i noticed um was the idea that this was just you know a billionaire who can do whatever he wants wasting money on a frivolous you know joyride and i don't think that's the case but can you talk a little bit about that yeah, or so somebody called it a zero gravity roller coaster, or or even worse. I mean, they use I, some of the one of the kind of disgusting comments is the idea that this is some sort of midlife crisis. You know, I think this view represents a, a, a total lack of vision on the part of the people who say this. The fact is that Bezos has a very definite and very clearly articulated purpose behind his investment in the space industry. He, uh, he gave a speech in 2019 at one of the Blue Origin events. Um, you can look it up on YouTube. The title of the YouTube video is Going to Space to Benefit Earth. It's transcribed as a talk, which you can get in this book. Uh, we should have put this up on there. This is a collection of his writings. Um, and um, it's, the talk is called The Purpose of Going into Space. So he literally has a whole article where he talks about what his purpose is in doing that. He spells out very clearly what his goals are. Uh, and I, I really encourage people to read this, the transcript of this talk, because it really shows you how the mind of an entrepreneurial genius functions. So what I took from his speech is the idea that in his view, it's, it's achievable within a few generations that mankind can expand out into the solar system 
and start to live and work in space. And this isn't just, you know, in his mind, this isn't like a science fiction fantasy for someday. His, his, the question that he asks himself is, okay, what is it, what is it going to take to actually make this happen? Right. So he draws on the work of a, of a Princeton physics professor who in the 1970s, you know, did a lot of groundbreaking work on like what space colonization could actually look like in a realistic way and what it would require. And <clears throat> one of the things that Bezos stresses is you know, like the first thing that's required is what he calls infrastructure. So in order to build space colonies and mine resources from asteroids and all this sort of thing, the first thing you have to be able to do is get people and stuff into space and back to Earth in a safe, reliable, and inexpensive way. So all the research and development that uh, Blue Origin is doing is devoted to solving these problems, cost, safety, reliability. So Bezos talks about, he, he puts it as he's trying to build a road to space. And his goal with this company is to invest heavily in developing you know, the technology and the capability of making travel into space as commonplace as you know, air travel is for us today, flying on airplanes. And I mean, this is what he's been focused on since he founded uh, Blue Origin more than 20 years ago. So this event last week, you know, this was the, the milestone that this represents. It was the first human flight to space on Blue Origin's reusable New Shepard rocket system. This, was the, this is the rocket system that they've been developing to achieve this goal of you know, a reusable to, you know, to, to bring the cost down. Um, so this was a huge milestone in the development, the, the, the progress toward this goal that he's been working on for decades. This was, this was like the opposite of some sort of frivolous joyride. This is a, this is a major step forward in you know, a, a very serious long range venture that he's been engaged in. Yeah, and uh, a, a few days ago, I came across uh, an, ex an excerpt from an interview with Bezos from 20 years ago, or, or a little bit more than 20 years ago, where he talked about his dream of going to space one day. And in the interview, he was asked, like, what would you do if money was no object? If you had all the money in the world and you could do something? And he responded, like more than 20 years ago, that he wanted to explore space. And uh, he acknowledged that it was very technically difficult and hard, hard thing to do, but that he was optimistic that, you know, in the, in the future, like he actually said, like in may, maybe 20 years, there would be enough technological advancement uh, to make that possible for him to go to, to space and start space exploration by civilians. And then, well, as you know, like then, later on in life he went ahead and founded his own company he built the blue origin and he invested heavily on this and made it possible for him to go to space that i think is so admirable he took it upon himself to do this you know with his own funds and his own wealth and he went ahead and did it and this is just the start of this you know it's, it's just yeah. going to keep growing my opinion. Yeah, so I mean, the idea that this is like a midlife crisis, I and mean, that's such a disgusting smear. I mean, this is a man who's been thinking deeply about this and planning for two decades and investing his own personal uh, 
uh, wealth that he's earned through voluntary exchange that we just discussed. Like, this is something he's been doing for two decades. Um, and I think, so the people's failure to appreciate sort of the general goal and his general purpose led to even more kind of like uh, some of the some of the the mockery and the attacks that you hear i think fall out of that as well so what were some of the other you know not to dwell too much on this but what were some of the other smears that we've been hearing yeah so there was this other one uh, mocking him that he didn't really quote go into space that he went just above the carmen line for a few minutes and that's it it's no big deal what do you have to yeah. say about that yeah, so again, I mean, this ignores the fact, this is ignores the fact that he has a carefully thought out long range strategy behind this. So again, what I took from his speech is like, his company is developing two kinds of rockets. So there's the New Shepard and the New Glenn system and the New Shepard system, which is the one that flew last week. This is designed specifically for suborbital payloads, whereas the New Glenn system that he's developing is intended to launch things into orbit. And he has, a, he has a reason why there's value in developing specifically a vehicle for suborbital launches. Part of the reason is they need to develop the skill and technology to bring about this radical reduction in launch costs. But also, you know, there's value in being able to launch things inexpensively just across the boundary of space. You know, he's got, he, I, I, again, he has his, a lot of interesting things to say about this in the article. I don't want to spend too much time on it now, but to be able to safely, reliably, and inexpensively launch things just across, you know, in, in, into uh, a suborbital, take these suborbital payloads in, into space, um, you have to do it a lot. So he, gives, he makes a comparison to, it's like a surgeon doing an operation. You know, you want that surgeon doing the same operation five times a week, not once or twice a year. So part of the goal is to make this a regular thing and to develop the skill and the technology by doing it all the time, to bring down the costs, to, to develop the experience and the technology and the capability uh, and bring down the costs enormously of doing this safely and reliably. So the fact that this particular rocket system only goes up you know, to just above this Kármán line, this boundary of space, like that's by design, that's a whole point. And, and if you understand what his long range goal is, you understand that this is a step towards a longer uh, strategy, you know? And so people are all just dismissive of it because they don't understand like, what is, he act what is his goal? What is the long range purpose? What is he trying to accomplish here? Yeah, and then another, another claim that I've heard uh, or read related to, you know, trying to dismiss this achievement is, you know, he's not a real astronaut, people says, because he didn't actually do anything at all to pilot the ship. Um, I think that is just absurd, but that, tell, tell me what you think. Well, I mean, it is absurd because part of it is that's the whole point of what he's trying to do here. I mean, he's part of what his company is doing is, is developing the technology to make the transition from, um, you know, astronauts piloting themselves into some highly trained people with experience as military test pilots and all this kind of thing, you know, being the ones going into space to a more of a, like a passenger model. I mean, none of us, when we, when we fly on airplanes, none of us are in the cockpit, you know, we're just passengers, right? 
And there has to be a transition. I mean, if you look at the early days of aviation, I mean, it was the same kind of thing. It was, it was highly risky and there were, you know, highly trained people who took it upon themselves to pilot themselves in airplanes. You know, you have the Charles Lindberghs and, and uh, Amelia Earhart's of the world, right? Um, so, but, but today, you know, we can all hop on a plane. We don't need to know anything about aviation, right? So, so this is all by design. And, and the fact that he and these other three, the other three passengers on the ship didn't have to do anything is part of the achievement. It's not something to mock him for. It's part of the goal and it's part of the development of what he's achieving here. He describes in his, in his talk, he describes the new Shepard system as specifically, it's a suborbital vehicle designed for space tourism, right? So again, this is part of his business model. It's, it's if you can sell tickets to paying customers, that's a way of generating revenues that he can use to fund the continued research and development and bringing the cost down and that sort of thing. So um, all, of this is, all of this is by design. Um, yeah, and, and related to that, uh, there's this other claim that says that there is something you know morally wrong about billionaires or millionaires to be able to, with them being able to pay for these trips to space. Um, yeah, and, and, right. And and this is so. So again, again, this is a failure to recognize the strategy and the business model. I mean, so the fact that that this is a business that's sort of almost designed for the ultra wealthy, like people are criticizing him for that. But again, this this is the whole first adopter phenomenon, which is well known in all kinds of industries. Like. How do you achieve efficiencies and safety and reliability? So again, what he says is, well, you need to be making trips into space all the time. How are you going to pay for that? Like it's expensive to do, the, do all of this development, right? Well, so if you can create a business model where you have you know, billionaires who pay for the luxury of taking and the experience of taking these kinds of trips into space, and this is part of a long range business strategy to make space travel you know, as, as commonplace as air travel is today. Um, you know, like, again, this is all by design and this is how you get to a place where it can be as commonplace and you can bring the cost down and, and make, you know, maybe someday all of us can afford to do this as well. But, but that's not, a, I mean, the whole first adopter phenomenon is it's it's very well known in all kinds of industries that the first products are super expensive they're considered as sort of luxuries for the wealthy but then the 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 revenues that are generated by selling these things at a high uh, profit margin um are, is, is what funds the ability for the to, to eventually bring the cost down and make it make it ubiquitous for other people yes and, and this is kind of like this is basically uh, what happened in with, with air travel which is one kind of like the, the thing that we can compare the most back in the 1950s air travel was prohibitively expensive for most americans and planes were almost twice as slower and and delays and cancellations were much more common than they are today because you know planes couldn't weather certain climatic climatic conditions and then in the seven in the seventies, only one quarter of Americans were flying at least once per year. But today, one and sorry, nine in ten Americans have taken a commercial flight at least once in their lifetime. 
So a business that started off as, you know, for, for the wealthy or the rich, you know, ended up benefiting everyone else because it became so much more affordable as the industry, as the industry uh, uh, progressed and advanced. And, you know, today prices are much more affordable and technology is much better than it was a few decades ago. And, and almost any of us can, can hop on a plane anytime we want. And I think the same is like you were saying, like to happen with space travel. There will come a day, I think, when these flights will be affordable for many of us. And, and even if this doesn't happen in the, in the short term, uh, it, the technology that these people are investing on and developing for these flights might end up benefiting, benefiting us all in the, in the future too. Just you know, imagine how much of the NASA technology we use, uh, we use almost like in our daily life and that has benefited life here on Earth. Like for instance, uh, from air pollution detectors to some materials that are used in hip replacement surgery. So there's a lot to, to, you know, there's a lot of benefits that will come from this, both like making space travel potentially available to us all at some point, but also from the technology that these people are investing on and, and researching. Um, yeah, so I, I think we should, uh, yeah, I mean, so let's just to sum this point up. I mean, to me, what this Blue Origin event represents is so it, it's a major milestone in a larger business strategy to build the infrastructure for safe, reliable, regular space travel. And I think people who've been commenting on this haven't even bothered to to even ask the question, like, why is he doing this? And what is his purpose in doing this? But this is why I view this as an absolutely heroic achievement. You kind of described it earlier as like making history. And I think it is in a very specific way. It's a historical milestone in the development of the private commercial space industry. So, so okay, let's take stock of where we are. We're, uh, we're you know, halfway through the podcast here. So we're trying to understand why is there so much hatred directed toward Jeff Bezos? And I think we've talked about two factors that are relevant. So one is that people take his achievements for granted. They fail to recognize just how much value he's created and how much better he's made people's lives through his work and through his business. Second, I think it's because they lack vision. Uh, they don't understand, they don't even bother to try to understand what his goals are and what he's trying to accomplish in the space industry. Um, so I think these two factors explain some of the reaction that we've seen, but I don't think they explain it all because I, I think there are much deeper, much more fundamental issues at work here. So, um, so what are, and we've talked about this a little bit, but why don't you talk about some of the more fundamental philosophical issues that you see as being relevant here? Yes, I think that part of the of the vitriol and hatred that um, that that we see is because of um, basically the philosophy of altruism permeating people's thinking, uh, and this relates to what we were discussing earlier about people thinking that there is something morally abhorrent about you know billionaires having all this money to spend on 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 space flight, you know. And you know, you see a critic like 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 Robert Rice that says that billionaires going to space, quote, while the rest of humanity suffers, unquote, is a sign of quote a broken society. And you see, I've seen the same kind of angle in other pieces, including a piece that was published in the Atlantic. 
So what these people are really saying is that, in my opinion, is that no one can enjoy the fruits of their labor and, and, and their wealth as long as other people on earth are, quote, suffering. Like it's unethical, you know, to be happy if others are suffering. And they assume that, you know, billionaires have a responsibility to fix the world's problems, to pitch in, like Elizabeth Warren said, it should pitch in to make everyone better off. And I don't, uh, that's, that's what they think. And also I wanna, I wanna say something, I don't wanna concede that premise that the rest of humanity suffers while these billionaires are going to space. Yeah. That is just simply not true. Um, yeah, I, wa I wanted to of, jump in. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I want to jump in on that point as well because the the perspective that people try to have on the world is this idea that somehow, you know, that the the humanity is is in a terrible state. We're all suffering and dying. I mean, th this is a broader theme um, that relates to some of the people who write about what you could call progress studies, like the Steven Pinkers and uh, people who, who um, point out the fact that if you look at the data, you know, about uh, in, in all, all kinds of measures of human life and well-being, we're, we're living at the time when life on earth has, has literally never been better for people. I mean, it's, it's the, the, progress in life expectancy and income and the rates of violence declining. And just like on, if you look at a book like Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment Now, I mean, it is packed with data showing how much progress we've made as a result of the enlightenment values of reason, science, technology, and this sort of thing. So, um, so first, the whole perspective that people bring to this, like, oh, we're all suffering and dying on earth and Bezos is flying off to space. Well, no, we're not all suffering and dying on earth. Obviously there's still, it, it's true that poverty and hunger and these kind of things do still exist in the world, but the solution to them is exactly the kind of entrepreneurial wealth creation that Jeff Bezos embodies, not attacking him and stealing all of his money to, to, you know, to tax him to the hilt in order to allegedly address these problems. Yeah, but this is exactly what this altruistic perspective does, right? These people that, that, that you know, want, they, they want uh, others to sacrifice their very last penny to help, you know, stem world like suffering, whatever that means, which we've said like it's not as, as they painted. And, and when it comes to these billionaires and millionaires, these people think, uh, these, these uh, critics think that nothing they earn can be spent on themselves, you know, as long as someone else needs it, they must, they must give it away because how dare you keep your, your, your wealth to yourself. And, and Ayn Rand obviously talked extensively about altruism in most of her, her works and she was a critic of altruism, obviously. We don't have like, time to explain her whole perspective, but there's this quote that I think is fitting for, for what we have been seeing in these critics, in this angle of criticism against Bezos and other billionaires. She says that the basic principle of altruism is that man has no right to exist for his own sake. The service to others is the only justification of his existence and that self-sacrifice is his highest moral duty, virtue, and value. There's a lot to unpack on that quote, but again, we don't have that much time, but I would ask the audience to think like this is, ex 
whether like they actually see this this happening with these critics uh what did this actually what the critics for uh the vessels critics are trying to 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 tell us that service to others is what these billionaires like pesos have to do and they have to give away their fortune as long as you know there's one single person on earth suffering whatever that means and another thing is that i think one question one should ask oneself when confront when, when confronted by the claim that billionaires should spend their money funding you know like paying for student loans like elizabeth warren asked for funding certain programs or whatever is why should they why do other people have a claim against these people's money and the fortune they made? And why do you, why is there moral obligation for, for the vessels of the world to do this? And um, I think this is probably what, what altruism thinking does, you know, they just default to, we have, they have to give it away. They have to help because people are, people need it. So therefore that need is a claim on their fortune somehow. And it just, you know, corrupts the thinking about this type of issue. And, and I mean, honestly, I don't think these people would stop until millionaires or the, the best of the world would like, end up with, with nothing, pretty much. Yeah, I think that ties in with the point that we were making earlier, that people fail to appreciate the ways in which an entrepreneur like Bezos already brings value to people. I mean, you were talking about as a, as a student just ordering your textbooks, like his business innovations have made it, have added value and made it easier for you to, you know, uh, to live and study and all this sort of thing. That's the value that he brings to the world. That's the kind of quote help that he gives to people. It's, but it's a win, it's a voluntary win-win trade. It's not, uh, it, it's not, um, it doesn't require any form of sacrifice, but it's, it's sacrifice that our culture upholds as the essence of morality. So if somebody is profiting by engaging in win-win trades, they get no moral credit for that. They only get moral credit if they give up values and sacrifice. Yeah, and like you said, I think Bezos has already made the world so much better with everything we've mentioned from you know the, the services and the job creations, everything. I mean, honestly, what more do these people want? It's just, I, I don't know, I just get really mad uh, with this type of thing. But if we look back in history a little bit, this animosity against successful business people and entrepreneurs is really not new. So uh, some of the productive genius of our era, including Bezos, are, are being attacked in similar ways that previous generations of productive innovators were, like John D. Rockefeller and JP Morgan, and, you know, the so-called quote Robert Barons from the 19th century. So th this is not a new phenomenon. Yeah, and, and I mean, this is a major theme of Ayn Rand's writings. I mean, the, the novel Atlas Shrugged in a certain way is all about the question of why is it that, you know, the productive wealth creators, like the, at I mean, this is her metaphor of the atlases who carry the world on their shoulders. Why are they met with hatred and vilification when they should be, when they should be respected, admired, and met with gratitude? for the value that they've created and the improvement they brought to everybody's lives. So this is, you know, I mean, it's a major theme of her work. She, one talk I wanted to highlight in particular is, is um, she has a speech called America's Persecuted Minority Big Business. When she sort of develops this point further, and she talks specifically about how um, 
you know, politicians try to use business leaders as scapegoats for all the economic and societal problems that are actually caused by government interventions into the economy. So people have a vested interest in trying to uh, blame all the world's problems on capitalism and on, you know, successful business leaders. Um, uh, in order to create a scapegoat and to, and to you know, create a, 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 a set of people that they can point to and say, well, all the problems are caused by them and what you need to do is to give us more power so that we can, we can you know, deal with those SOBs and solve the problems. Um, but it's really, it's a rationalization for, uh, you know, for a real hatred of uh, the kind of achievements and the kind of success that these, that these people have created. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, this is, from my, from my perspective, this is, there's an element of envy here, or more specifically what Ayn Rand called, uh, the, the phenomenon that Ayn Rand called the hatred for the good, for the in the good. And she talks about this uh, extensively in, in her essay, The Age of Envy. And she says that this is hatred that is not resentment, she says, against some prescribed view of the good with which one does not agree. It is, as she says, hatred of the good for being the good means hatred of that which one regards as good by one's own conscious or subconscious judgment. It means hatred of a person for possessing a value or virtue one regards as desirable. And I think this is an instance of that because, you know, Bezos and other millionaires are, are resented by a lot of people, but for, for different reasons, but what, what we have been seeing in this particular instance of Jeff Bezos' spaceflight is that he's been like put down and completely ridiculed for actually his best qualities, not even his worst qualities. He's been criticized for funding his own flight to space and for having the vision and courage to pursue that and something he's been dreaming for for at least 20 years that we know of 20 years, probably been dreaming about it since he was a kid. I would, I would yeah. venture, I mean, that's probably true. And you know, and he opened the door to space exploration by private companies, you know? Uh, and that's something that like we have said before in this podcast, like something that we will all benefit from in the future. So I think that's part of what's going on in the response in the culture. And I think it's just really, disgusting and sad and I fear for what's going to happen next honestly yeah yeah so we're just to wrap up we should take some questions soon but I think just to kind of summarize the basic point here I think at the at, at the most basic level I think what we're seeing here is one of the most ugly features of our cultures today attacks on a on a creative successful producer someone who's created an enormous amount of wealth and brought an enormous amount of value into being impacting all of our lives for the better. And he's being attacked because of his virtues. I think it's, uh, people really need to ask themselves, like what does it say about a person's soul if your reaction to you know, the sight of somebody going to space on his own dime after founding a company dedicated to space research you know, and, and based on a fortune that he's earned through incredible value creation is not, admiration and respect, but, but resentment and vitriol and mockery and hatred. I think people really need to take a hard look at themselves and ask, what does that say about themselves? Um, you know, I think 
you can have two basic orientations in life. You can be driven by values and value creation, or you can be driven by resentments and this phenomenon of hatred of the good for being the good. And unfortunately, I agree, what we're seeing is it, across the culture is so much of that latter disgusting emotion. So on that happy note, let's, let's draw a line. And why don't we take a look at some of the questions that have been coming in. We've been getting questions on YouTube. Yes. We've been getting questions on, uh, first of all, I just wanna thank, um, I wanna thank all the people for their super chat uh, donations. We've gotten a, a, quite a few number of those. Um, I just want to echo one of the comments from one of our super chat people who says, I don't care about the masses. If Bezos wants to fly to space, it's his money and his business. Screw the mob. So I agree with that completely in sentiment. So, yes. um, yeah. Um, so I did, here's, um, I think, what it would be a good question to take now. It comes from Zoom and it says, when it comes to justly evaluating ultra successful producers, how do you weigh serious moral shortcomings. This is broader than Bezos, of course, this person says. Yeah, I mean, the way I would approach a question like that is, is to, to um, ask sort of, what are the aspects of their character that they are, are, are conventional and you know, are, are expressions of the sort of dominant ideas that exist in our culture. So if somebody expresses sort of altruistic views, you know, so does every, you know, like so does everybody else in the culture. So the, the, the way I approach it is to ask the question of like, what is distinctive and unique about this person's uh, character and achievements and what aspects of his character and achievements are, are just conventional things that he shares with everybody else on the planet. So in the case of Jeff Bezos, I mean, yes, obviously I don't agree with all of his views. I don't agree with all of his philanthropy. I don't agree with, you know, a lot. Um, but in all those areas of disagreement, I mean, the, he's, it's an expression of the ideas that are dominant in the culture and that he shares with basically everybody else. Um, so I don't, you know, it's not reasonable to sort of single him out for criticism for those things that he shares with everybody else who also holds those views. But what, but, but is that what's essential and what's distinctive about Jeff Bezos? I would say, no, what's distinctive about him is his achievements. And, um, uh, and, and you know, the, the thoughtfulness and the genius that he brings to those achievements. And that, so I think, um, you know that it, it's a matter of focusing on what's what's essential and and part of the way you get to that is by asking what's distinctive and unique about this person did you want to add to that augustina no i don't have much to add to that. I, to that i um i absolutely agree with everything you said um so Let's see what else we have here. Well, the question, how much did Amazon benefit from government lockdowns? I, 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 it's, I don't want to read between the lines here, but to, if, if, there's, if there's an extent to which this question is saying, oh, you know, the, part of the reason Amazon was so successful is because the government did these lockdowns, that explains the success. Again, it's like I have a totally opposite perspective. We were all victimized by these government lockdowns and by the, the totally mangled approach that, that, um, <clears throat> that, the, that the government took to the whole pandemic. So let's just, so 
So all of us were victimized by that. We're all locked up in our homes. And who came to our rescue? I mean, I view Amazon as an absolute savior. So many people uh, were able to get the products that they needed while they're locked up in their homes because Amazon was able to rise to the occasion, expand its delivery uh, service, expand its consumer base, you know, its customer base. I mean, um, again, this is, it's one of these things, it, it, like some of these things that we said about the space travel stuff, um, people just have this topsy-turvy perspective on it that's so bizarre. Like I view Amazon as, as you know, kind of heroic in how it helped people through the pandemic. Um, so the idea that this is somehow, oh, they just benefited from this government action. Um, you know, I, I just think that's totally the wrong perspective to have on it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with that 100%. Um, I don't know what uh, our country would have looked like. I mean, our lives would have looked like without Amazon uh, during the pandemic specifically. And it wasn't just, you know, I mean, they also in, like implemented a bunch of measures, much like every business, you know, to protect their own employees as well. Um, so it's not, it's not like they didn't care about that. They kept people employed and they, which, you know, there were a lot of layoffs in, in the country when the lockdown started, kept people employed and they uh, implemented new unprecedented measures to protect those yeah. employees that were still working. Yeah, I don't and, remember. Uh, I don't remember the number, but sorry to cut you off. I, the, I, yeah. in the, I, I looked this up as well because there was, there was some incredible number of people that Amazon hired who'd been laid off by other companies because of the pandemic, but they were able to find employment with Amazon because Amazon was ramping up it, its operations. So, you know, I mean, it, it, this is a, this is a really positive thing. Um, yeah. So there's, there's another question here uh, that came from YouTube. Didn't DARPA and government bailouts create Amazon, not Bezos? I mean, again, this is so, um, yes, Jeff Bezos didn't create the internet, obviously, right? Uh, nor did he create, you know, UPS or the mail services that he relies on. He didn't create, like, I, I, this is actually, this is an interesting point because it's something that he talks about in this talk that I mentioned earlier, the purpose of going into space. Um, he talks about the fact that when he started Amazon, he was building a company, you know, on the basis of certain infrastructure that had been built over, over decades and even centuries before him. So, you know, the infrastructure for transportation and delivery of things you know, the whole financial infrastructure of credit card payments. I mean, you know, you could put like Amazon didn't have to create that. You, that already existed and you put your credit card on Amazon and you can buy stuff. Um, the, the, the whole development of the internet, obviously Amazon was resting on that. But, um, and just as a quick side digression here, this is part of what's so interesting about what he's trying to do with space because he recognizes that for the entrepreneurs of the future to build the space colonies and to build the asteroid mines and to extract resources and to create you know, opportunities for travel and leisure and work and all this kind of thing in space, the first thing they need is infrastructure. So in the same way that he benefited from all these different pieces of infrastructure that he built upon in founding and developing Amazon, 
he's saying that none of that exists for space yet. We don't have the roads to space yet, but that's what he's trying to build. He wants to be, he wants to be one of the people who are creating the infrastructure that future entrepreneurs can build on. Um, so that's the first point I wanted to make. That he, so he has this perspective on what kind of infrastructure requirements uh, were important in the development of Amazon and, and how does that translate into what his goals are for space. But that's just a side issue. To, to answer the question, the fact that all that infrastructure exists is not what made Amazon. It's not what created Amazon. You know, if, if you think that's the case, then why, why is it that Amazon became Amazon and not some other company? Why is Jeff Bezos the, the entrepreneur who has achieved the success and the scale that he's been able to achieve and not somebody else? There's a failure to recognize just how rare and how difficult it is to have the leadership and the, the um, you know, just the business competence to create something on the scale that, that uh, that Bezos has, you know, with regard to, uh, and look, with regard to issues of taxation and government, look, we live in a mixed economy. I mean, we all, all of us suffer from that. And, you know, there are ways in which the government chooses winners and losers um, through its policies. None of that should exist, but, you know, you can't, um, I think attacking someone like Bezos because of uh, the ways in which his company has had to work within the systems that exist. You know, again, there's no tax bailout that made Amazon what it is today. What made Amazon what it is today is the incredible, um, you know, value creating efforts of Bezos in leading this, you know, 1.3 million employee company. That's what made Amazon. Um, and 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 I don't think it's the only just way to look at that is that it's an incredibly heroic achievement in business. And I, I don't think there's anything more to say about that. Yes, um, okay, just I was hoping one last I would thing. go into full rant mode there, but I just did, so. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I get that because um, I'm also kind of outraged at all this hatred uh, against him. But okay, we're at time almost. So um, I would like to thank everyone who made super chat donations. We really appreciate that. We got a lot of those today. Um, and right after uh, we finish this podcast, Keith and I will be on Clubhouse discussing more of the things that we discussed here today. And uh, so we'll be on the Iron Run Club on Clubhouse. You can look it up. And now Clubhouse does not require uh, invitations to sign up. So you just can go and sign up and immediately join the Iron Run Club and you know, participate in the discussion there. Um, so some resources uh, that we would like to highlight. Um, one of them is uh, like what Keith mentioned earlier, America's Persecuted Minority Big Business, an essay, an essay by uh, Ayn Rand. Uh, you can find, you can find one, it online. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and let me just jump in. So the second one that's listed here, Notes on the History of American Free Enterprise. We didn't actually end up talking about that. We could talk about it a little bit on Clubhouse if people join us there. But I put that in there because uh, there's some interesting parallels Ayn Rand, it's an article where Ayn Rand was talks about some of the history of the, of the railroad systems in America in the 19th century. And there's some interesting parallels there 
with uh, space. So I just thought that was interesting to link to. Good. Um, and then uh, another uh, essay that we mentioned was The Age of uh, Envy, which uh, you can find in the book Return of the Primitive. And you can find that, you can buy it on Amazon, obviously. And then another essay by Anne Rand that is really illuminating is Apollo 11, which can be found in uh, The Voice of Reason, another one of her books. And in the same book, you can find Epitaphs for a Culture. And, yeah, can I just uh, jump in on that one too? Because yeah. I because we didn't we didn't really talk about this, but this is so Apollo Eleven is Ayn Rand's like eyewitness account of the launch of Apollo Eleven and then her discussion of the sort of the philosophical significance of the of the moon landing and the space program and all that. And in Epitaph for a Culture, sort of as a follow-up article where she talks a lot about the cultural response to the moon landing. I think people would find that interesting looking at that today because a lot of the a lot of the attacks that people are making against Bezos, they were saying the same thing about the moon landing in, in 1969. So it's actually interesting to go back and see, you know, that a lot of what, a lot of the, the, the negativity and the hate and the attacks, I mean, that existed back then as well in, in, in a totally different context. So interesting to yeah, look like at we, that. Yeah, it's one of the other, one instance of what we said earlier, like these attacks are really not new um, in general, but, um, and then um, Ayn Rand has a radio interview that is available on um, the Ayn Rand University app and ARI campus called the Robert Barons, which is really illuminating about the attacks that uh, the Robert, Robert, quote, Robert Barons from the 19th century had to face from the culture, which are sadly very similar to what our productive, gen productive geniuses of today have to go through. So uh, next week's episode, of New Idea Live is going to be titled The Pure Hatred of the New Anti Antitrust Push, which is kind of related to what we have been talking about today. It's gonna to happen next Wednesday uh, at 11 a.m. Pacific to p.m. Eastern and uh, Onkar, Gate, and Ben Bayer are gonna be discussing. So finally, how to follow us. If you're on YouTube, uh, please subscribe to our channel and click the bell to get notifications when we go live or upload new content. Uh, and please also like, share, and comment on this video to help attract, uh, to help attract attention to our channel. And uh, likewise, if you're watching on Facebook, uh, please like and share this video. And uh, if you have questions or comments, uh, please email them to us. Uh, we always read and very often answer uh, your questions that you send. And sometimes we take your suggestions for episode topics. And you can email us at newideal at so with that said, thank you to the audience for being here today. Uh, thank you, Keith. And uh, well, we'll see you hopefully in Clubhouse, everyone. Okay. Okay. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.